0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host today, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Dana Malone about her book, From Single to Serious Relationships, Gender, and Sexuality on American Evangelical Campuses. Welcome to the podcast, Dana.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: I wonder if we could begin by having you tell us about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, so this is always kind of a tricky question for me, where to begin. Um, so I, th- I think it's easiest. So I'm just going to kind of talk about um, what I'm doing now and then maybe give you a bit of a backstory of where I've come from and how I, how I got to where I am. Um, so currently I'm an independent scholar. Um, and so I... I don't work for any one institution, um, full time, but I'm, I'm writing and I speak on on my research and I I teach as an adjunct and I do project-based work for various colleges and universities. Um, and the reason that I have structured my career that way at the moment is because I'm the primary caregiver to my two kids. Um, so I've been doing that for a few years now. Um, I actually, um, kind of got into the, into this independent scholar world, um, right around, um, the time that I got the contract for, um, from single to serious. So I actually sent that off, um, that contract off the day that I went into labor with my daughter. And so, um, I got the call from Rutgers. Or I got the, the notice from Rutgers when I was uh, recovering in the hospital. And so, um, so that's what, um, so I always think of this book as, as kind of coinciding with her. And, um, and so that's what, uh, what I've been doing for the last several years, but, um, before, prior to that. So a little bit about myself and, and where I come from. Um, so I'm based in the Philadelphia area right now and, um, but I grew up in Northern New Jersey. Um, I, I have, uh, two older brothers. I'm the only female only girl in my family. My family is, um, from Armenia. So my parents are first generation born Americans, um, here in this country. And, um, It was interesting because I did hear a podcast. I did listen to your podcast. Um, Oh, now I forget. We just talked about it, and I forget her name. With the Reverend, and she could not recall the the, uh, genocide, and it was it was the Armenian genocide. (laughs) That podcast, she couldn't recall. So that um, I I, that's that's my family. That's um, one half. uh, My dad's side of the family came over. To this country to escape the genocide there in Armenia. So my parents uh, grew up in New York, and then they moved just outside um, New York in, in New Jersey. And so I spent my whole life in northern New Jersey. My parents still live in the same house I grew up in. Um, and so growing up, my whole world was kind of New York and New Jersey. Um, Vacations at the Jersey Shore. I still do, and I love it. Um, for listeners who are, are have never been, it is much more than what you see. Um, you know, <coughs> <in> Snooky <laughs> and there's your dogs. Um, And so, yeah, so I, I pretty much lived in Northern New Jersey my whole life. And then I went off to college. Um, and I did end up attending, I I did attend an evangelical college, uh, much like the ones I write about in my book. Um, and I, I did that in the South. So this Northern New Jersey girl who really only knew Northern Jersey and New York, um, moved to the South and went to a conservative evangelical college. And, uh, So that was a bit of a culture shock on many, many levels for me. Um, I had, um, I had grown up going to church. My family did attend, um, kind of like an independent sort of evangelical church in high school when I was in high school. So I was kind of familiar with that, but what that looks like in New Jersey versus what that culture is like in the South, um, is very different. And so, um, that was a really, uh, really unique experience for me, um, going to college. And, um, I ended up, I did graduate. I stayed all four years. I made some dear friends and mentors and the whole thing. Um, and, uh, I'll probably circle back to this, but that in, in my, my time in college, my, my, probably my beginning of my freshman year was probably the start of some of, some of the, the, um, very early beginnings of, of the book, um, for me and the questions that I started to ask myself, um, about kind of gender and relationships uh, within an evangelical setting um, I um, I worked at a few evangelical schools after graduating um, I worked in student affairs and specifically I did residence life work so I lived in with students um, so you get a very close-up you know kind of relationship and look into student life when uh, when you do that. And so I did that, um, as a single person, I did that on my own. And then after I got married, my husband and I, um, well, we lived in, we lived in together after we were married. And, um, so yeah, so I did it in two different capacities and t- in two different schools. And, and so that was, um, uh, really interesting. I spent a lot of time with students talking about relationships and their, how they're navigating them and, and all the things about that. Um, I've always been intrigued by relationships um from an early age. Um, so my mom and I would talk about that pretty candidly when I was growing up. Um, like I said, I have two older brothers and they were they were a bit older, so they were kind of off doing their own thing. So I spent a lot of time with just my mom. And um she was pretty, pretty forthright, pretty candid with me. She didn't really sugarcoat things about marriages, her own included, um, or people we knew. So I kind of got a a real a real look at what relationships were like. Um, so it was interesting because when I went off to college, um, I was, I was not really keen on the idea of marriage, just kind of from what I experienced or what I knew. I was kind of like, eh, I don't know if that's for me. So I, um, so then landing at this, you know, conservative Christian college, uh, with, with that mindset was, was very interesting for me as a, as an 18 year old. Um, so to circle back, so then I, I did, um, yeah, so I did res life, live in work. Um, and then for, I did that for a number of years. And then after that, I, um, I went on to, to complete my doctorate. And so at that point, I kind of knew um, when I started my doctorate, I knew what I wanted to study, I really knew that I wanted to do something with the intersection of gender and relationships um, within an evangelical setting. And um, I ended up you know, having some preliminary meetings, uh, with some faculty that, uh, that I, um, had just, you know, uh, knew a, a bit from a friend who had, who attended, um, I ended up going to the university of Kentucky. So I, um, I did meet with who ended up becoming my advisor before I even applied just to kind of, just to meet with her and talk about my ideas and what I was thinking. And she was, she was on board from day one. She loved the whole idea. She loved the project. Um, you know, not that I had a specific project, but just the themes of what I was wanting to study. And so um, it just all kind of came together and I did end up going there and she did end up becoming my advisor. And- um, And it was really a, an amazing experience. And so, a lot of people when they go to grad school, you know, they they find people whose research they research the faculty members whose research that they're doing that they want to get on board with. But I felt like I was in a unique situation where, and, and her research area is, is not you know is not terribly far off um, from mine. But um, but I felt like I was in a really unique situation in that from the get go, I had someone who was really excited about what I wanted to study and was a supporter of that. And, um, and it just made my doc work an amazing, amazing experience for me. And, um, and I was able to really write my dissertation like a book. I mean, she is the one who from the get go, said this, you know, do you want to, she asked me point blank, when I started, do you want to write that, do you want to do the extra work and write this like a book, or, you know, you know, just do a traditional dissertation. And so I said, "No, let's let's go for it." Even though I think I was still didn't really believe that that was. I was just trying to get through. I was just trying to finish, you know, um, my program. And and um, but I was really fortunate to have that support with her because it's it's interesting because after I finished, um, and I was looking to shop the, shop it and things like that. I I sat in on a um, in ASA, an American Sociological Association webinar on how to turn your dissertation into a book. And I remember the speakers saying, like, if you can, if you can get the support, you know, if you can write it that way to begin with, you know, that would be ideal. And a lot of the grad students on the call at the time, you know, several of them were saying, "Man, my advisor's just not supportive of that," and that sort of thing. So after that, I realized what a what a unique gift I had in my advisor um, at UK, and just the whole experience of of my, my doc work with her. Um, so yeah, so it was really neat. So that's kind of a little bit about kind of where I grew up and then some of my grad work and, and, you know, the, the projects, um, how I kind of sort of came to it a little bit.
1: And that's a really great intro into this unique project because not many people have had the window into this, uh, that you've had. And in the foreword, you say, often what people truly believe, especially about difficult topics like sex, romance, and dating, is kept carefully hidden from one's peers, and sometimes even from one's best friends. And at the back of the book, in your acknowledgments, you thank all of the friends and peers who didn't keep things hidden from you, who shared conversations with you. Um, And you really recognized how rare that was that people were opening up to you. And when you started doing this book, you, you conducted sort of these focus groups. Did you not where you went into the university Mm -hmm. and some students sat with you and, and shared things. How did you get them to open up to you about these things that normally are
0: kept hidden? Um, so I did, I did focus groups first, um, at the two different schools where I studied and, um, And this, so the research process for this was really, uh, it's one I spent a a really long time considering um, how to do this um, project. And so, um, I'm very clear in, and I'm trying to think if I write this in the, if this made it into the, the cut of, uh, my methods for the book, but, um, if not, here it is. Um, this is a book about perceptions. So my study was a book about perceptions of relationships and intimate relationships was the phrase I used. I didn't say dating. I didn't say hooking up. I was very careful with my language. So it was perception. So I did that very intentionally, um, because, so what I ended up doing was I studied very closely Donna Freitas' book, um, Sex and the Soul, and and Kathleen Bogle's book, uh, Hooking Up. So those were like my two guideposts. I studied their – I looked up their dissertations. I read their dissertations very closely. Then their uh, – well, um, Donna's wasn't her dissertation, but um, Kathleen's I did. And and I looked at their methods, and I studied it really carefully. And, and I kind of I, – I took from each of those things that I – that I thought would work with the, what I was wanting to do. Um, and so one of the ways that I did get into these schools, that they even allowed me, I mean, because I had to go through, you know, the, the proper channels and IRB approvals and all that sort of stuff to get in um, was because I was doing perceptions. So I was not going in asking students to tell me about their intimate relationships and sexual practices. Um, I had actually done a pilot study, and I had actually done a preliminary study at one of the schools where I worked that did ask about sexual um, beliefs and behaviors. Um, but I was able—I had, you know, I had connections on campus and things like that, and I was able to do that. So I, I had a little bit of a, a preview into, you know, similar colleges and, and that idea. But but the way into these schools was that I was doing perceptions, and and initially my my. My decision to do that was um, was very practical because I thought that's how that was how I would kind of they would allow me to come in as an outsider um, and and do that and then but then it ended up being really um, the more uh, methodologically preferable decision because I ended up with such great narratives from students who actually had not secured a relationship. So they had not been in a relationship. So had I used, um, So when you're doing your, you know, participant selection and things like that, and your criteria, had I made it a criteria to participate in my study that you had had a relationship or been in a relationship dating or otherwise, you know, there's a lot of stories that would not have made it a lot of students who wouldn't have made it into my into my study, and their narratives were so rich. Um, there's one in particular, um, I'm trying to think of her pseudonym. I think she's Betsy. Um, I think I call her Betsy and she was from small evangelical U. and somewhere. And I think it's in the gender chapter. I, she, she just told me, I mean, she was a senior. She, the year I, um, interviewed her is the beginning of her senior year. And she had been at the school all four years. And she came, very explicitly told me, she came to find a husband, that it was easier to, she was one of those, went to Christian schools her whole life and came to find a Christian man. And, and she used the analogy, I'll never forget, something like it's you know easier to catch a fish in a barrel than in an ocean kind of thing. Um, and so that was her intent. Unabashedly, that was her intent. And then by her senior year, she had not even been on a singular date and and had told me this whole beautiful narrative of all of the ways that she had tried to get something going with this guy crush that she had had for 3 years all the strategies she used through friends through different things and and i her story is one that i just i just kind of really love because in some ways she is kind of what you think about when you think about you know um some uh, you know the mrs degree student right she kind of fits that 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 mold in a way, um, and and there are women who do. But again, her story wouldn't have made it if I had said you had this had to be personal experiences of a successful relationship, right? So so perceptions. This is this is a study of perceptions. So I asked students perceptions of how relationships worked on their campus, um, and so I went in. Um, I went into my research. I had a whole very intentionally prepared spiel that I would give at the start of a focus group. And I used feminist te- uh, feminist research techniques, which really tried to break down power barriers um, and different things like that. And I told students, you know, um, you are the experts here. And um, so, I mean, I, you know, I was in my Oh, early to mid thirties. Like I was in my early thirties, I suppose, when I conducted my research, and so obviously there's like an age differential there, um, and you know, and I was a doc student from you know, uh, you know, a state university, and so you know there was there was issues there, but I was at the same time I was safe because I was offering them confidentiality. Um, as much as I, you know, from my perspective, um, they weren't going to have anonymity in that room with their peers. You know, this, both of them are fairly small campuses. So the people in the room knew who they were, but I really tried in the beginning to say like, y- you are the expert here. I am the student because this study is about student cultures, student relationships, and how that works on your campus. So you obviously know more about that than I do. And so I'm here to learn from you. Um, and so I really tried to, um, uh, downplay the power differentials and just create a really open, um, space for students to share. And, and I did really, you know, talk seriously about the confidentiality piece. Cause that's real on their campuses. Like even if they didn't know each other before they walked in that room together, you know, I'm sure they'd seen each other. I'm sure that they, you know, and they would see each other again. Um, And, um, so those, those are some of the ways that I, that I was able to do that. Um, and I tried really hard, you know, I, I know, I know I also use this technique where I said, pretend I'm like an alien who just landed here and I don't know how anything works. So please explain it to me. Because the other thing is when you study something that's so ubiquitous, right? Like relationships, it's easy for people to be like, oh, well, you know, you know what I mean, or, you know, and so they don't, but I really wanted them to unpack it, really unpack it for me and for themselves, because a lot of them probably, and I did find this, you know, they hadn't really broken it down in their own heads quite to the level I was asking them to. Um, And so, so just using some different um, techniques like that uh, really helped. Um, And of course, you know, students were self-selecting, like I, you know, sent out the invites, but you know, not everybody, um, you know, not everybody who was invited ended up, you know, participating. But um, so I hope that makes sense.
1: It does. And one of the things I was wondering as I read along through the book, um, because you, you do talk about relationships and gender and sexuality for these students. And yet, as you're studying these two different schools, one which you call the Large evangelical university, and one of which you call the small evangelical university, to protect the, um, you know, to protect the students and and, and the culture that invited you in, um, is that you found that while sexual purity and um, relationships are highly valued on the campus, there's very few safe spaces for students to. Talk about what sexuality means to them, how they deal with the complexity of it, and I was wondering, did you get a sense by the end that the students who self-selected to do this were relieved that they had had this time with you to ponder these things?
0: Um, yeah, I, 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 I do think I do think it was a great outlet for a lot of the students. Um, you know, I, I did the focus groups first, and then I, I followed up with individual interviews for those who were willing, and, and most everybody was. Um, there was one student who uh, did the focus group, but then wouldn't do the interviews, and I tried really hard, because her story was one I really, really wanted, um, because I could tell um, in the focus group that she was her mind was kind of blown in that room with some of the stuff that was coming out. Um, and I could tell she was on the very extreme of the conservative side. Um, almost probably I would say along like court, like I, I think she was more familiar with like courtship type models, like dating was even like a stretch for her. And so I really wanted to capture her story, but, um, she, she didn't want to do the interview, but so I, I do think, for some students, it was very eye-opening just to hear other students talk so candidly about what they either knew of um, what was going on with other students. Um, you know, because I had some people in the room who were had been RAs or had different leadership positions, and they spoke out of you know the knowledge they had from some of um, those positions and just that those interactions. Um, and I think. I I did find in all of the focus groups, just this really, it was just really robust conversations. Um, My very, and I I will never forget coming back from my very first focus group. I I started, um, I did small evangelical you first and, um, and I, I, Um, I did sign up times for the focus groups and they were not at all. It was just, I had two times and students just signed up whichever time worked for them. And so the very first focus group I did ended up being, it was entirely all men except for one woman was in there. Um, and and it just kind of naturally worked out that way. And then uh, the other focus group was entirely all women. And, you know, and I look back on that and I, and even after it happened, I thought, you know, I didn't plan it this way at all, but given what I ended up learning about the culture of that campus, I think it couldn't have played out more perfectly because I think uh, both the men and the women felt much more free to just kind of bare their souls about the reality of, of gender stuff uh, in, in in a mostly, you know, uh, at least with the men, it was, it was mostly all men. Um, and the one woman, she, she did speak, she did speak up. Um, but they, and that, and I'll never, and that focus group went, I mean, it was two hours. I, 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 budgeted two hours and they went over the time. And I said, you know, and I was like, I want to respect your time. And they're like, no, we want to say, I mean, they were just really chatty, these men about that. And I remember coming home from that first, um, day of, of generating data and just, really being on like this high of like, Oh man. Cause you know, you, you know, I started this, this was just meant to be an exploratory project, you know, just to kind of do something for my dissertation, not just do something, but I mean, exploratory, I didn't really know how in depth it would get. but When I got home, I really, I talked to my advisor that night and, um, and I was like, I really think I have something here. The narratives were so rich. I mean, you just, because you don't know, you don't know how it's going to land. You spend all of this time planning it out and doing protocols and all like question protocols and all of that, but then you don't know how it's going to land. And the group dynamic is always different, right? But it was um, it was really, really good in all the groups. Um, just, um, so I do feel like the students were eager, really eager to talk about it. And even in the opening of my, of the book, in um, the opening, uh of the introduction is that's exactly how it was. It was like this, this, everybody just sitting there, like looking at each other, you know, looking at me and kind of like, uh, and then I lobbed the first general question and then the ice is broken with the MRS degree and the laughter and the, and it literally like happened that way for every single one. And so once we kind of got past that, then they just opened up and we just, we talked about all the things, (laughs) all the things and, and they were really enthusiastic and really, um, Willing to just, I think, have a listening ear to talk really candidly about the relationship dynamics and what happens and doesn't happen on their campus, what's allowable and what's not allowable. Um, And then it was interesting to hear, you know, and I I, there's a couple spots I think in the book where I talk about this, where to to go back and listen and hear how you know a student might be uh, what they were saying and how they were interacting within the group dynamic, and then what they were saying in the individual interview when it was just the two of us. Um, and sometimes I got even more deeper into their, you know, I think in the group, they were kind of just kind of like listening and going along with what was being said. And then they expressed a more, you know, personal counterpoint in the interview. Um, it was a woman, I think it's Molly evangelical you about the PDA. Um, about the, uh, the lack of tolerance for PDA on her campus. And then she kind of was like nodding along and agreeing along in the group. But then when we got in the interview, she really, I remember her quote, something to the effect of, you know, she was like, but you're alone and you just really want to kiss this person and you really just want to do this and you can't do it. There's nowhere to do it, you know? And so really just hearing her her heartfelt lament over just this lack of private space on her campus to be intimate with her boyfriends. I mean, and not, you know, not like crazy intimate, you know, not like she's, you know, trying to, to go have sex with him, but she just, even just the simpleness of like, you know, wanting to kiss or, you know, really embrace or anything like that and just knowing how, um, how much that was looked down upon.
1: And you talk about the difficulties of intimacy for these students that things like sharing a kiss, even when you're alone, uh, can be difficult to, to navigate. Um, and yet once they get married, as soon as the vows are done, literally the wedding night, they're meant to be fully sexual and the complexity of this idea that you can flip a switch. And can you share a bit about your findings
0: on, on that dilemma? Sure. Um, Yes, that is that's something that's a that's an idea I've thought um, a lot about because that is something that um, you know that was something I was aware of before I did this research because I had worked at these schools um, because I had attended one, and so um, I'm sure my mind is reeling really of different ways to go so. Um, there were themes that came out in the research that i was already familiar with and um again because of my familiarity with these types of of environments um and that was one i had witnessed that when i was um a student myself um again i you know i came from northern new jersey and people don't get really married up there until you know you're close to 30 so when i went to school seeing people who are in college, like getting married was just like blowing my mind. It was just like, Whoa, Oh my goodness. Like I just never knew anybody to do that. Or, um, and, and so, um, you know, hearing and then, and then more so hearing people as that, when I worked at these schools, um, hearing students talk about that or hearing stories of, um, or knowing through, you know, work with a counseling center or things like that. These students who are just really struggling with sexual issues, because it's just like with anything, like if you, if you are taught your whole life, that something, you know, it's framed in a negative way, um, or it's, it's great, but for later, but, and for now it's bad, right? So anything related to these feelings and these desires and these, um, longings. Now we either don't talk about, or it's, it's, you know, it's shameful or it's just not for now it's bad, but it's great for late. Like then, you know, that's, you, you literally almost probably have a visceral reaction to it like that for years and years and years of your life. And most of these students, I forget the percentage that I, I, do have that in there somewhere like 90 something percent of them had grown up, you know, either in a Christian home or, you know, they, so, so their experience with Christian, you know, subculture or Christian communities, what college wasn't their first time. Right. So they, they had grown up with a lot of these similar narratives. Um, and so you have, you're just, it's innate, right? Like I can just imagine like if I had taught my, my, like anything, you teach your children from the time there. And then all of a sudden one day, it's like, Nope, Nope. Now it's good. Now it's okay. Um, you just can't pivot that quickly. You just really can't. Um, And these schools, you know, I know a lot of the schools would do, you know, they offered premarital counseling, they offered, you know, marriage workshops and things like that for engaged students, I think, to help, you know, help with that transition some. But when you're talking years and years and years from youth group and, you know, friend, all the different ways that that message is coming at you um, from the time that you're an adolescent and, you know, coming of age. Um, to the time you're in your 20s, like that's a really long time and a lot of years of undoing. Um, and so students talked about that. They de- definitely talked about that. They shared stories of friends that they knew who struggled. Um, some, you know, I think I write about the different different ways that students talked about this. Some students, you know, uh, some women kind of were like, well, you know, even with anything sexual was like, well, that's not, you know, I'm not in a relationship right now. So it's not something I'm like really thinking about because they really did put it off. It's kind of like this out of bounds, like it's out of bounds until you're like really close to getting married kind of thing. Um, it's dangerous. Um, and, and, uh, so from my perspective, you know, I really, I write about that being, it's really problematic. It does not, um, engender an informed or agentic way to, uh, you know, deal with your sexual life. And, and when I say sexual life, I mean, it doesn't even mean that you're acting on that, but just being, you know, the feelings that you have, the urges that you have, um, you know, just the sexual nature, um, whether or not that actually turns into an action or not, um, just even the feelings. And so, it, it's, it's really complicated. It really is a complicated relationship. And, and I write about this too, you know, the schools are trying to address it, but again, it's in a very uh, specific way. It usually still is in the frame of marriage. You know, if we're talking about this, this is marriage or engagement, they really, um, it's really hard to get outside that box, um, for them for, for schools. Um, Sometimes, maybe in some, you know, residence life type programs, there might be some, um, you know, more programming about that. And it just, in my experience, it just depends on on how how real and how honest that gets. Kind of depends on the administration at the time and on how how open they are to really going there with students and allowing their staff to go there with students. Um, if that makes sense, it's really it's really a dangerous topic, not just for students, but for the administration as well.
1: And you say they sort of handle it by extricating sexuality from romance, that they know the students are largely working towards couple them. Uh, they're, they're working towards these relationships and, and we'll get into the, the steps that, that you found that the students need to take to do that. Um, but once they are, in a, in a relationship with each other, they're still meant to have romance and sexuality be two separate things. Is that correct?
0: Well, that's my analysis of it. <laughs> I don't know that they would agree, but that's my analysis because I, I mean, just as I wrote about, I think, I, I do think that is a huge um, double bind that students are in at these institutions. It's, it's so uh, there is so much focus Um on on coupling up uh whether that's from the students themselves some even officially from the institution um stories about that you know large evangelical you talked about that you know that the you know i that you know the the ask the president they give out date packages and you know that they're just you know or small evangelical you talked about all you know the pastors from the pulpit i mean so it's a very um encouraged in in a lot of ways uh but then but then the sexuality piece, no, not so much, not at all. Right. Um, and so, yes, I mean, I, that's my analysis. It's, it's, it's this double bind for students. Yeah. Be, be a couple. Yeah. Get involved. But, um, but we can't be sexual. I mean, there's elaborate and elaborate system of rules to keep men and women, quote unquote, safe and apart. Um, and so the whole as I kind of write about again, that's my take on it, <laughs> it's this elaborate structure to keep them separated, to keep them um, you know, from from having sex. But at the same time, they feel this push, this push, um, this encouragement to to couple up. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's an incredibly difficult double bind for students.
1: And so how they navigate this seems to be one of the overarching questions of the book. You say, how is it that students go from single to serious, and what transpires on that journey? What customs and rituals do they employ? What scripts do they enlist? And you found sort of a three-phase process that they go on on this journey from single to serious. And the first phase is what you call the group phase. Can you talk to us about the role of the groups? Because this seems to have a strong um, role in the idea of perceptions of relationships. The groups seem to help protect the perception of the people. Can you talk about that?
0: Sure, sure. And I do want to note here that this this process um, that I that I lay out um, was was. Uh, fairly, I mean, it was well known. It was described by almost everybody there, um, in, in both, you know, at both campuses. Um, but at the same time, I will say this is the, how shall I say this? This is the, uh, this is the acceptable process, I guess I would say. I mean, I'm sure that there are students who are doing it other ways, right? There, I'm sure that there is hooking up happening. There is other things, but the kind of overarching norm, for these campuses this is what was presented this is what was spoken and, and agreed upon um and so yes the group phase um it's a really important well the first two phases are quite important the group phase and then the talking phase but the group phase is this initial um phase and, and and it's really important because again men and women don't um so so a couple overarching uh themes that you have to understand about the relational marketplace on these campuses um you know, it's, it's, it's highly, it's high stakes um, in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that are flying because marriage is this thing that's just out there and, and kind of this assumed thing and dating as well. So if men and women are seen together alone, it's assumed they're dating. Um, So that's, 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 that just happens. Everybody talked about that. Um, Like if you're seen walking on campus with a guy, it's assumed you're together or you want to be together, right? This, this notion of like, uh, cross-sex friendships and you know, platonic friendships or anything benign like that is just really non-existent, um, casual dating, non-existent, um, yeah, casual dating, even taboo, like even considered a very like not appropriate practice. Um, and so given that the group phase is really important because this is where students can sort of interact with each other um, within a safe, Space of a group, right? You can kind of without all those assumptions flying. So I can see you um, and we can interact, but we have all our friends around us too. Um, and there are some folks for whom, you know, that doesn't work. Um, and again, this goes back to what I was talking about with the perceptions. I got a lot of really rich narratives from some people who were kind of on the outside looking in. Um, One gentleman, I remember him talking, he could name so much of the process because he was on the outside. He didn't have a niche. He didn't have a group. And so he talked about the challenge of trying to navigate relationships when you don't have a group and you don't have a niche and you don't have these partners in the process of trying to, to, you know, um, it's, it's a very group oriented process. So you're, you're in this group phase, um, you're seeing each other in your friend group or whatever. And then, um, and, and media, social media, digital media is really, it was really fascinating for me to learn how digital media works. Um, so I went to an evangelical college, you know, 20 years ago, um, I navigated this scene, but without the whole digital media scene, you know, aspect. So hearing students talk about, how digital media plays into the relationship process was really fascinating for me. And, and, um, it's interesting that even though I was so familiar with these, these contexts before doing this study, I learned so much, so, so much. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, you know, as, as you would expect that I would, it wasn't like, I it wasn't like, oh, I knew all of this before I went in. It was still so rich and so valuable. Um, and so in the group phase, you know, if they, they may, as they moved. Um, I always, so I talk about this as like a continuum. So the group phase is on one end. So as they move through the group phase, kind of towards the middle to the next phase, um, you know, you might exchange numbers, uh, phone numbers, but, or, you know, you probably start with on Facebook. So your Facebook, you know, not stalking, but maybe Facebook stalking each other and you become friends on Facebook. So you might be chatting through Facebook. Then eventually you might um, get each other's numbers again, not to call, not to call, but to text. And so you're texting each other and all of this is, is, um, important because this is all very much can still stay on the down low. Nobody really has to know unless you share it. So I can be interacting with this person and feeling them out and feeling out interest without other people knowing, which is really, really important because I also talk about uh, relationships on these campuses being like parking tickets. Um, You don't want too many on your, your record, even percept, even a perceived relationship, even if it's not an official relationship, um, because this, this idea of, you know, being super intentional with your relationships and being, and they're so, they're so weighted, they're so heavy. It's so, it's so, um, high stakes, you know, it's, it's so, it's so important. They don't do this casually. Men and women don't interact casually. And there's so like, again, the dating assumption, the marriage assumption, all of that is there. And so it's very taboo, the idea of casual dating of like, you're kind of talking to this person one week and you're talking to this person another week, that looks very bad, very badly. And so, you know, having that privacy. So digital media prov- provides a privacy. Cause again, I talk about that as well, that private space is really limited on these campuses. So digital media creates an opportunity for privacy. Um, and so you can kind of be texting and doing all that, and then it could turn into nothing. And nobody ever has to know that that was even a thing again, unless you decide to to tell people and to make that a thing. And so, so that there's safety in that group phase, there's, there's a fair amount of safety, um, in that. And the group phase is important because friends and peers are really important in this process. Um, they provide approval, Sometimes they help people, women, especially get things going, orchestrating things, you know, inviting people to things so that you can have quote unquote chance meetings or stuff like that. And that's all the behind the scenes stuff that women, you know, need to do because in these environments, they can't be overt. They can't be direct. They can't be, um, you know, out there with things because that's just not acceptable. It's not an acceptable gender performance for them, um. So I hope that kind of explains it a bit.
1: It does. And so w- when they move from the group phase, they move into the talking phase. And there's some overlap between the two phases. Uh, this is not as cut and dried as it, it might sound. And you go, you go into that in the book. But one thing I noticed is kind of the relief the students expressed at being in the talking phase because it was a way for them to sort of suss out If this was going to move forward and they talked about it it being, you know, easier than dealing with rejection later. And, um, there were a lot of things that they were bringing up in this talking phase about their spirituality, about their goals that they're, they're really kind of doing by text. Um, some of these things that you might think of are, are really crucial about who you are and what you're looking for. um, can you talk about the difference between the talking phase and the dating phase and, and why you need to be able to progress from one to the other? Sure.
0: So the talking phase, I think that relief that you're talking about, um, is, is in my estimation more for the men, more for the men. Um, because, you know, so this, within these, within these environments, it's, it's a traditional model that the men is to, the man, man is to take the lead. The man initiates, um, especially at Small Evangelical U. I found that incredibly so at Small Evangelical U. Very strict traditional roles there. Um, A little bit looser at at the larger school. um, A little bit more diversity there, but not, not not a whole lot, but more so than at Small Evangelical U. And so the talking phase, the men, that men's group that I had, Um, they, man, they were really, really chatty about this phase. They had a lot to say about the talking phase, um, this, this middle phase, um, because for them, it's so important because again, uh, they don't want to put themselves out there and get rejected. Like that was super clear. And so it's interesting from, you know, to kind of analyze this from a gendered perspective and to, you know, in a lot of ways, the men, they, they hold the power in the sense of who initiates, who gets to decide, the relationships and stuff, the men, but I did not find, um, I did not find that the men saw that as so much power and privilege. Um, I heard more, and I've read in other other studies where, um, you know, and especially non evangelical settings where you know men kind of own that in a different way and have a different, um, a much different um, sensibility about that. Um, but the men I spoke with really it was it was a lot for them it was pressure for them it was um not something that i think they necessarily embraced entirely that they and so this talking phase for them was a really key strategy on uh figuring out does she like me is, is, does she reciprocate my feelings so that if i put it out there i'm going to get an accept you know a, a yes instead of a no um, because again, you know, both campuses, but small evangelical you especially, pretty small, pretty small, pretty tight knit, um, and so, you know, people know, people know if you make a misstep, people know if you've been rejected, and and these men really seem to to feel that like uh, really intensely, and so the talking phase. I think the way they described it to me was, you know, it's what eliminates risk is I think exactly the phrase they used and they were all on board with that. Yes, 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 yes. So this is how they out, um, you know, a lot of things. So not just the men, but for both. So, so for both men and women, this is the phase of like, you're kind of feeling out is there compatibility on a number of issues? Um, you know, different students at different, at each campus had different things they were looking for that was important to them. Um, And the difference between, uh, you know, an interesting difference between large and small evangelical you that I talk about is this kind of like, do you, don't you, sex before marriage. And that was definitely a part of this phase um, at large evangelical you, but not so much at small evangelical you. I think at small evangelical you, it's like party line assumed that you're not having sex before marriage, but that was definitely not an assumed assumption at large evangelical you, that that was very clear. There are pockets of students do and who don't. And that that was a really important thing. Everybody agreed um, that needed to be kind of figured out before because, you know, and and to their credit, they did not want to, like students don't want to step on people's toes. They don't want to put people in compromising positions or make a mismatch on that issue, right? Like they'll respect that you don't, but, you know, it's probably not going to be a, you know, a good fit kind of thing. So that was, that was an important piece at large evangelical you, that was part of this talking phase of really just kind of figuring out that compatibility. So the talking phase is interesting because, um, you know, especially a small evangelical you, and I'm kind of trying to recall if, if it was, it was probably this way at large too, but maybe not as much. So, um, things just tend to be a little bit looser there. Um, but it's, it was exclusive. Like the idea that you're talking with multiple people was not acceptable. Um, it's like, you're talking to some, it's like predating and it's like, so this is the person, this is the person I'm focused on. Right. So you can't be doing that with multiple people. You can't seriously be talking with, or even talking at all with multiple people of the opposite, you know, sex. It just, it just didn't go well. And I remember, I think it was, I think it was Brian. Um, I think I have a story in there about how he was just, he was a very, <laughs> very outspoken, very, um, interesting, um, Uh, a student and, and, and his stories and his narratives were really rich in the focus groups. And he told a story about how he, you know, basically was just trying, it was trying to, how he got burned in that process, um, that he liked one girl and was starting to kind of initiate some things with her, but he played music and was playing music with her roommate. And so genuinely just wanted to play music with the roommate and, of course assumptions flew and things started happening and everybody's thinking he's playing the other girl. And because he's, you know, and he said, no, I just liked her as a friend and we were playing music together and the whole thing blew up in his face. And he ended up kind of getting a reputation as a player. And it was like this whole big, you know, and as soon as he started into that story, the, uh, and, and as soon as he said, um, I wanted to, you know, I started playing music Uh, with the roommate, all the women in the room went, no, no, no. Like everybody knew as soon as he said that you can't do that. Like, it's just, you can't do it. Um, and so, so the talking phase is interesting because it's, it's almost like an exclusivity as well. There's no verbal commitment, but it's really understood that you can't do that with multiple people, but you're really trying to test out. Is this, is this going to go the distance? Because again, dating is so is, is, um, having a dating relationship is so significant. And the assumption is if you're dating, you're likely going to get married, right? If you date for any amount of time, the the assumption is you're going to get married. So there's a lot of assumptions rolled up in all of that. So, um, and again, taking into account, there's no casual dating. There really isn't, um, or casual friendships (laughs) or cross-sex friendships, casual cross-sex friendships, not to say they don't happen. They definitely happen. And people told me stories about that, but there's a lot of talk that goes on around those and students have to really be strong in not allowing that to affect them. Um, and uh, and so that's how it's that's how they're kind of tied together. The talking phase really leads into the dating phase so that by the time you get to the dating phase, I mean, you've done a lot of work. <laughs> you've done a lot of work at that point. Um, And, and dating is pretty serious, you know, at least it's assumed to be pretty serious. And if it's not on the part of the couple, well, again, they have to really, there's a lot of, I call it community chatter that they have to turn a deaf ear to because there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on around them as far as chatter about their relationship and and all that sort of stuff and questioning and and assumptions and, and all of those things. Um, and, and I will say, so here, I think this is an important piece that I, that I highlight as well. Um, a gendered a gendered piece here, the, uh, it was definitely made known. And I think both men and women mostly would recognize that women seemed much more concerned with the labels, with the, my, I call the milestones, right? The milestones, but the labels of like, are we dating? Are we together? You know, are, am I your girlfriend? Um, And that can almost be like a joke or a caricature of of women on these campuses. But as I really dove into this and I unpacked this uh, with students and then in my own analysis, I realized um, on that continuum from the group phase to the talking phase or the intermediate phase to the dating phase, uh, women, they need that label. They need that label. And especially at schools or in communities like small evangelical you, because before it's official, before she is officially the girlfriend, um, her gender performance is really up for critique. So she has to be super careful that she's not texting too much. She's not being too needy. She's not directing too much. She's not, you know, uh, taking the lead. And, and so the closer, and this was explained to me by several students, the closer, you know, as the relationship progresses, and so the further into the talking phase you get, the closer to the dating phase, that loosens up a little bit. But I really feel like it's not until they reach that girlfriend status where they have publicly, it's a Facebook official, it's public, I have this man's affection, that those things, that her phys- like, so whatever they're doing physically, In public or however she's acting can really, uh, it really covers her. It covers her to not be labeled in detrimental ways and risk the relationship from the community perspective. Um, Again, that's my take on it based on everything that, that the students shared with me and, and, and that was one of those moments where as I would kind of member check is what we call like kind of, you know, going back through and like talking through with them. Here's, here's what I'm sensing after the focus groups. Does this make sense to you? I think it really helps students understand things in a different way. Um, Cause you're, you know, they're in it, they're living it. Um, I'm coming in with an outsider's view, getting the whole picture, but that's really, that was my sense. And so I say that in the book, like even if it's subconscious, I do think that's an important piece that needs to be highlighted. It's not just for the sake of the label that these women are concerned about that. I think it's because it really frees them up to be able to take a lead, um, to be comfortable, to relax a bit, that they're, what they're doing isn't going to be so critiqued from a gendered perspective. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And you you really clearly take us through all the steps of, of that in the book, and you give numerous examples of the relief for the girls and sort of their expanded um, role because they can now be slightly more assertive or aggressive in ways that they couldn't before they had um, this girlfriend status, that the behaviors they may have wanted to use before now are perceived differently. And as you've said, this is really about perception. This is how these students are experiencing it. and one of the important uh, experiences that they have is what you call the DTR or the talk. Can you talk about what that is as far as uh, this dating process of going from being single to finding out if you're being serious or not?
0: Yeah, so the DTR, uh, the Define the Relationship Talk, um, and it's, it's basically it's either called the DTR. Some students were familiar with that. Some students didn't like it. They felt like it was more of a high school term. Um, large evangelical you, they refer to it more as the talk. I did find no matter what people called it, no matter what students called it, everyone described it. So it is, it is a, it is a well-known ritual that happens and it's essentially the talk to define the relationship. Like, what are we? Um, and, and it's necessary because of this like awkward, you know, in uncertain talking phase, right? Like we're talking, you're not really supposed to be talking with different people, but we're not really official yet. And so the DTR is basically the line in the sand of like making you official or cutting it off. So I made the, I made, and I think I talk about this in the book. I made, I, my mind just initially went to, oh, like, so because, because it's Small evangelical you, they talked about the DTR walk that you would usually do this on a walk on the outskirts of campus to afford you some privacy. Right. And, and I thought, Oh, that this is a good talk, right? You're going into the dating phase. And, there were, and the men were all very much like, Oh, no, 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 not necessarily. Um, and so they go off, you know, kind of away from people to afford privacy, um, from the men's perspective, you know, to kind of, if they have to let them down, if they have to tell the woman, like, no, this isn't going to happen. Um, in case there's any, you know, just tears or who knows just for the privacy factor um women felt like the walk you know at small evangelical you kind of talked about it as more of like a distraction it's like something to distract you from this like awkward conversation right that you're having um and so but it's and and at large evangelical you i don't know that they had as many rituals around it but it definitely was like an important thing that happened um and um and so uh it, that, that, uh, that ritual is, is important because without it, you're not official. It seems like that is the thing that makes you official. Um, and the Facebook officialness, which is kind of crazy to think about how significant Facebook is, but like, so for some people at large evangelical you, they would almost, I think one woman kind of described it as the conversation basically went, well, like, are we Facebook official? Like, is this, are we officially putting this out there to the world that we're official? Um, but that talk, it, it is the it is the crossroads of either this is going into a dating relationship or this is not. So this we're just talking and now it's over, um, and we're not going to be dating. And so it's the DTR is the segue into if you're going into the dating phase, into the dating phase, and and women. Like, uh, like, I remember one of the women at Small Evangelical, you kind of likened it to like, to like a, a marriage proposal. Like, you have to ask me. You have, we have to have this conversation. You have to ask the question, like, to be, for me to be your girlfriend. And, and she talked about it as like her, her boyfriend was like, well, I thought we were dating. Like, I thought we were, we were seeing each other. We're already dating. And he's, she's like, no, you have to ask me. And so it was just clear from both campuses that this, this conversation has to happen to define what they are or what they're not, if that makes sense.
1: It does. And part of why it makes sense is the student's confusion about dating. You, you, you say that pretty explicitly in the book. There's no standard definition of dating or date or going on a date. There's people who would try to be careful to say, well, this is a pre-date because, as you've said, it's almost like acquiring parking tickets. If you've been seen on going on an actual date with you know four different guys, none of which progressed into dating – that that's a ding on your uh, record, your character record. Mm -hmm. Yes. That, that people are all taking note of. Um, one of the things that you highlight in the talking phase is while the soon to be couple or pre-couple is texting and talking with each other. Um, they're also at some point going to their friends group and saying, well, how, how do you feel about this text that he sent me? Like they're, they're also analyzing the text as a group, which is probably how um, the one guy uh, tripped himself up by texting the friend that he was really interested in, but also playing music with his girlfriend, the, her uh, roommate, they were going to end up wanting to analyze text together at some point, And he would, they would find out that they both knew him in different capacities and it was going to crash and burn. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about that is, you know, the whole analysis over texting—like, how often do you text? How soon after do you text? It's, it's, it's just like a whole new medium. Like, in in one sense, it feels like it's been around forever, but then in another sense, it really hasn't. Like, even when I wrote this, however many years ago, um, you know, there was, and I and I um, I use. Um, Another scholar who who does like digital media, and she basically says like, there's no rules around this yet. This is all so new, um, these mediums, right? So now you have Facebook and you have Twitter and you have texting, and it's like so. There's everybody kind of has to figure out their their philosophy around this and what this means, and so. And this is, I mean, this is an age old thing, right? Like it's this, it's, it's likens to the same idea. Like how soon after do you call or, you know, it's just another medium of communication, but there's so many more of them and so many, different ways that students utilize these now. Um, and so it's, to me, it was just fascinating to see the different ways that they, they do use these um, different forms of communication and how much time they may spend, you know, analyzing it. Um, I didn't get the sense that the men were doing that as much as the women. Um, but again, the women always being on the receiving end, trying to, to figure that out, right? Uh, because they are very much in the reactive, responsive um, not initiating s- space. So trying to read you know all those things um, from that perspective.
1: And another very gendered uh, difference in, in responses is if there's a breakup. So you were talking about how the guys responded to the texting a bit differently. But once they've moved into what is a confirmed dating phrase where they're definitely boyfriend girlfriend, their friendship group is still really crucial to this. And when a couple breaks up, the breakup ripples throughout their entire social system there, and yet for the females, there is a very different response to a breakup than there is for the males. In what you found in your focus groups, can you talk about that?
0: Sure, um, you know I think like some of the women describe. You know, it's like they act as if. I think one woman says something like, you "Act as if you had like a death." Like they're calling her at like three in the morning, like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" Like this missed opportunity, right? Um, Because women, they're not all women. And I, I, I try really hard in the book to, you know, while some of these stories do sound like a typical scenario that someone might expect on an evangelical campus, they, they don't all. Um, and so for some women though, but, but those, those, um, experiences still exist, right? Those, those are there along with others that are being added to the mix. Um, But some, you know, they are doing the math, right? If they do hope to kind of be in a serious relationship or be on their way towards finding a life partner by the time they leave. Um, And so when somebody breaks up, it's kind of like this, okay, like you're starting all over. And so it is, you know, the women did seem to take it, not all women, but some women, especially the small evangelical U women seem to act like it was a much more serious thing. Um, and the men, not so much, uh, not so much kind of like, oh, you're free, you're free, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I remember, I think it was, ha- was it Haley from uh, Large Evangelical U who was, you know, kind of talking about that. She said that like her friends were calling her like, oh, like it was a death. She's like, nobody died. I just broke up. Like, it's not that big of a deal. So there are some women who were kind of like, everybody slow the roll. Like, it's really not as big of a deal as you're making this out to be. Um, but you know, the awkwardness definitely comes of these small, tight knit communities. So like, because again, you've started the relationship likely in the group phase with this cohort of friends. So now you're not together anymore. And so you're still seeing this person in class or the cafeteria or in your friend group or your activities, whatever. And so it's awkward. Um, and, and, and again, I think the women did kind of have more of that missed opportunity, um, you know, to, to have, to find that, you know, life partner kind of thing. And so now you're starting all over again (laughs) from the beginning.
1: And in chapter six, you, you talk about some of the, the pitfalls in a way of, of this system, things that really, um, that you you were giving a lot of thought to, and one of the questions I usually ask authors is, "What do you hope that your book sparks, and I feel like chapter six really is the things that you hope that the book sparks, yes. so in the few minutes we have left, do you want to talk about some of those sparks that you hope you yeah. hope are are going to go out there with this book
0: um, Well uh, my overall um, you know and this is interesting, so um, I really toiled over the like dedication. Um, and I did end up just simply kind of dedicating it to, uh, to my guy, um, because we've journeyed through this so much together, but I, I almost wanted to do a secondary dedication to, to all students at evangelical schools. Um, most, especially the students that I interacted with that were my students who I still, a lot of them am in touch with over Facebook or whatever. Um, because so my initial, my, my, my big, Takeaway. My big spark for this was to provide a framework for this very subtle, um, nuanced, unspoken process that is out there. And and I did have several people say that to me of like, wow, like this really, like I had a friend whose son is you know now attending an evangelical school, and she gave it to him, and it was just like like I wanted to give them language to understand um, and a lens to understand this world that they're in. Um, cause you sometimes, you know, for some students you come here, I mean, and they, or they go there and you, they may not have had previous experiences or it's so different. And a lot of students did talk about that. If they went to public high schools, it's so different than what they experienced. Um, you know, because you're living in this really tight knit space. Right. Um, and so that's my first spark is just to provide language and a framework and stories to identify with, um, Donna Freitas and I had several conversations um, and and I respect her work tremendously and what she had hoped for with her work and what how the benefit of her book and and then you know um, in a similar vein with mine, this idea of you know students may not want to share their own story, but they can point to people in your book and say but that you know they can use Haley's story or you know Betsy's story or whoever's story instead of using their own. so it's a way to kind of, a way into the conversation for students of what might be difficult. Um, so that's one spark I wanted or one one usefulness of it. I also wanted it for the faculty and practitioners who are there in the administration to kind of really see, what, to hear what students are saying when they have a chance to really talk honestly, to say, yeah, I give the party line in class because I'm not willing to step up because they assume that I think these things, but I don't think these things. Um, so to, ha- to have a glimpse into you know, the, the true heart and nature of what's happening on their campuses and to provide a critique of it. And and I really do list out a lot of the pitfalls, um, especially around sexuality. That's, it's just so important. This is such a pivotal college is such a pivotal and rich time for relationships and sexuality specifically. And the fact that a lot of these students are partnering up for life. I've seen just in my work on these campuses, I've seen a lot of relationships crash and burn hard hard because they're trying to navigate these things on their own and trying to do what they think they're supposed to do and not being authentic with themselves or having any real spaces to be authentic. And, um, and that's, that should not be, that should not be. So I kind of, it's like my way of sending up a signal to say, we need to kind of talk about these things. Um, one of the things that most important to me is this idea of related to the sexuality piece of just the shame and the silencing is just so detrimental. So, so, so detrimental um, because then students and research bears this out, not just for evangelical schools, but for, you know, uh, research on abstinence and, and, um, and I referenced some of that in my notes and things like that. But, you know, these students, they, they think they're not going to because they're not supposed to, and then they're not prepared and outcomes happen that don't need to happen. Um, and, and, and um, when I worked at these schools, it's very hard as, as an administrator where you are bound by certain policies and rules yourself. Um, I had a lot of on the record and off the record conversations with my students. Um, because I felt like I needed to, as a as a human who cared about them, I would say this is completely off the record, but I'm going to tell this to you, and I'm going to suggest this to you, <laughs> um, because they need they need that they need places where they can go. If someone finds themselves pregnant, or they feel like they had an experience that was non consensual, like where can they go? Um, now, fortunately, some may feel like they have enough of a relationship with a friend or a mentor that's safe enough. To be able to say that, but, but from what I heard, there's that, you know, that's, it's, it's not the majority, right? There's a lot of students who feel like I can't even utter this. Um, and for some, you know, they may have no framework for even how to make sense of it because sexual education is really just not a part of what's going on. Although I will say, and when I did some updated research, um, they are, some of these campuses are starting to, with the new laws, have more, um, more bystander, more you know, sexual assault things like that. So they are being given more tools and language for this kind of um, these kinds of topics to be able to understand it and to be prepared for it, um, if that makes sense. So those those are some of my really big key takeaways and just the, the to to free up some of the the rules and the the unspoken rules around gender. And for the students themselves, because students are huge purveyors of this process on their campus. They're the ones who are in the halls late at night and in the cafeteria and who are, you know, gossiping or, you know, part of that community chatter. And so when I go and give addresses, um, that's one of the things I hit hard for students is um, is that idea of like, are you helping or are you, are you part of the issue here? Like, how are you supporting your peers? Are you the one making comments when people are seen on campus or are you giving people space and grace to do their lives and their relationships without your two cents being thrown in there kind of thing? Um, So those are some of my takeaways.
1: And those are important takeaways. They were things that come up for the reader as you go through the chapters, particularly chapter four, which is about fitting a mold and how difficult it is to have any authenticity if you're so concerned about these molds. And you also talk about that students shared with you that, you know, the dis- the disapproval of their peers ranked more highly than a concern for them about what they would do if they got pregnant. You know, on their radar, it was what their peers thought of them was was far more likely to be a, an eminent problem than that they could have a, you know, a life-changing decision to have to make. Um, so I, I urge people to, to, um, Definitely read Chapter 6 if you're an administrator. Um, I think they apply to non-evangelical campuses as well. Um, In the few minutes that we have left, would you like to tell us about what project you're working on now?
0: Um, Sure. So... Um, I wear a few different hats in higher ed. Um, so the research and the work I do around like gender and sexuality and religious identities um, is one, but I also, um, I also do assessment in a very, sorry, I, I wear a very practical administrator hat as well. Um, and, uh, and so the project I was in the middle of working on, which I hope to pick up here in the fall, um, it's kind of been on, on hold a bit as life has kind of stood still with COVID. Um but I was in the process of, um, I'm trying to, with a colleague, we are, we are writing up some of our, um, the work we've done around assessment for the last 10 years and, and putting that hopefully into a guidebook for the profession, um, around assessment planning. Um, so that's one thing I do have some, I, I do have some other things related to the book. Um, an article on, I, I didn't do as much on masculinities in the book, um, as perhaps I could have, um there was a lot there and as, as it was. Um, but I am hoping maybe to get something going. Um, I had started something, uh, with my advisor, actually, um, my, my grad school advisor about masculinities. And so I'm hoping to maybe do an article or so about that to explore that a little bit more. Um, I've had uh, many thoughts about a follow up or a next, a next phase of what I would love to do along the same research lines as, as this book. Um, And so that just remains to be seen as if, you know, how that will, that will come to be. So I won't mention too much about that yet, but um, I do have in mind some things. Um, So I've got a lot of, a lot of things ruminating, but um, right now I would like to finish the assessment planning uh, book that I'm working on and and maybe some of the masculinities um, pieces that I'd like to add um, out there. So those are kind of some of the things I've got brewing, depending on how um, this next academic year goes. And, uh, hopefully my kids will be able to stay in school. So (laughs) that's, that's a hope.
1: (laughs) Well, those all sound like really interesting projects. And I do, I do hope you do more on, on what you started with from single to serious, because there's such important stuff there. And I, I felt as I was reading it that, Oh, there's more she wants to say. (laughs) So I hope that, I hope that that project that you can't yet talk about, I hope that that happens and you'll come back and talk to us about it. Um, You've been listening to From Single to Serious, Relationships, Gender, and Sexuality on American Evangelical Campuses. We've been talking with Dr. Dana Malone. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. This is New Books Network. Please join us again.